All right, let's jump into the listener's commentary on the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. And while this is the beginning of the book of Acts, there really still is a broader context to this chapter, because this chapter really picks up where Luke 24 left off and overlaps with it to set the stage for where Luke now wants to go in the book of Acts. And so, Uh, This chapter, Acts chapter 1, begins with really almost like a preface that summarizes some of the same things we see at the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, summarizes some of Jesus' interactions with his apostles, and the focus is the apostles and Jesus here, and then summarizes the commission of the apostles for the job, the task that Jesus is calling them to. And therefore, what Acts chapter 1 does is it ties the story of the movement of the apostles and the church and the gospel that we see in the book of Acts. It ties that to the the work of Jesus that we saw in the gospel of Luke. And what Acts chapter 1 does is it really sets the stage for where the story of the book of Acts is going. And there are two noticeable chunks in Acts chapter 1. The first chunk is verses 1 through 11, and the second is 12 through 26. Both go together to make one kind of overarching story with one key theme or key point for us, but those two chunks are distinguishable. The first, in verses 1 through 11, is the overlap with the Gospel of Luke and really is sort of like a preface where it summarizes Jesus' interaction with the apostles and his commissioning of them to be witnesses and then his ascension again, like we saw at the end of the Gospel of Luke. The second chunk, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, then summarizes what the apostles are doing while they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and how they replace Judas so that they might have a full 12-number group of apostles. That's Acts chapter 1 in a nutshell. Let's look at the details. Uh, Acts 1 begins like this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice how clearly Luke ties this volume, Acts, with the first volume, Luke. He refers to the first volume as the first account I composed. That's the gospel of Luke. And so he's tying it together. And notice Acts uh, is addressed to the same person that the gospel of Luke is addressed to, Theophilus. We saw Theophilus mentioned at the very beginning of the gospel of Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4. And we see him mentioned here. And we said that Theophilus more than likely... Though the book of Luke and the book of Acts together are written for the church at large, Theophilus is specifically mentioned most likely because he's the, the wealthy patron who underwrote the cost of producing this book. We don't know for sure, but that's highly likely uh, in view of what we know about these types of things from the ancient world. And so 
the first account, Luke, uh, was uh, he says about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice that, uh, that he describes Luke, his gospel, as being about what Jesus began to do and teach. What does that imply about the second volume, Acts? Well, it implies that this is still about what Jesus is doing and teaching now through his spirit and his apostles. And so Acts carries on the story of Jesus uh, and Jesus continuing to work. He's just doing it now through his apostles by the power of his spirit. We'll see more about the spirit here in a second. Now, in verses 3 through 8, what Luke is going to do is he's going to summarize some of those orders that Jesus gave to the apostles by the Holy Spirit. That's the way verse 2 ends, is that Jesus gave orders or instructions by the Spirit to the apostles. Verses 3 through 8 is going to summarize some of that. Here's what's said. Verse 3, to these, that is to the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering. His suffering obviously refers, therefore, to his death. We're talking about his resurrection after his death. And he presented himself alive, notice, by many convincing proofs. This is the only place the word translated many convincing proofs is used in the New Testament. And it refers to decisive proofs, things that require a positive conclusion, right? Like, the proofs are so convincing, so decisive, there's only one possible outcome. And so Luke is saying that the evidence that Jesus was alive after his death, that he rose from the dead, was so decisive, so convincing, that it compelled there's only one conclusion for them. That Jesus really was back alive. What were some of those convincing proofs that Jesus used? Well, when you read Luke's gospel, as well as some of the other gospels, even some of the other things mentioned in the letters, we get a pretty good picture of these convincing proofs. Jesus ate with them. He talked with them. He met with them over a period of 40 days, Luke tells us here in verse 3. He gathered, not just with individuals, but with groups of people, including, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a group of 500. Like, it wasn't random. It wasn't ephemeral. It was clear. It was concrete. It was tangible. It, it was long-term. He was alive. And so to these, the apostles, as well as others, but Luke is focusing on the apostles here, Jesus demonstrated his resurrection by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. So for a month and a half after his resurrection, we, we don't get this impression in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we only get maybe a week or two, right? But Luke tells us, no, this went on for 40 days, a month and a half. Jesus continued to meet with his apostles and his followers after his death. Um, and after his resurrection, he met with them and ate with them and talked with them. And Luke summarizes what that month and a half was all about. Speaking of the things regarding the kingdom of God. And so as he's meeting with them and eating with them, he's got a very intentional focus. He wants to really get them dialed in on and tuned up for the work he has for them. And that re requires him to speak about the things regarding the kingdom of God, God's kingdom that is now being inaugurated and initiated in and through Jesus the Messiah. Luke then summarizes a specific incident of Jesus meeting with them and teaching them, and it really focuses on his commission of them for the work that he's calling them to. Look at verse 4. Gathering them together, them is the apostles again, so gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And so, 
as they've been meeting for a month and a half. They are now back in the region of Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them they need to wait there in Jerusalem for what the Father had promised. What is it that God had promised that they're waiting for? We'll continue reading. It says, which, Jesus said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the promise of the Father is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus wants them to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit is poured out upon them, so then they can begin the work to which he's called them to. Two things about this are important. First, Jerusalem. Uh, The prophets, the Old Testament prophets, had routinely said that when God makes all things new, when God acts and the Messiah comes and God is in the business of reversing all things, right, and carrying the story forward, that the word of the Lord, the word of God, would go forth from Zion, would go forth from Jerusalem. And so Jesus tells them, I need you to wait in Jerusalem. This is going to be the fountainhead for the good news that God is now in the business of making all things new. So Jerusalem. The second bit is the Holy Spirit, that they are waiting for the coming of the Spirit. And again, the Old Testament prophets had said, when Messiah came and the Messianic age began, that one of the marks of that, the distinguishing marks, would be the outpouring of the Spirit on all people. We'll actually see this in Acts chapter 2 and Peter will quote a prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Joel all about this. You hear the same sort of thing, for example, in Isaiah 44, where it says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. Or once again, another text from the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and it will bring it about that you shall walk in my statutes and carefully follow my ordinances. And so we just hear this repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets that when God makes all things new, when his plan moves forward to the new stage and when Messiah comes, the spirit is going to be a key mark of that. And so Jesus here is saying, look, what the prophets promised is coming true. You need to stay rooted in Jerusalem. You need to wait until this happens. And then the spirit will be poured out so that you can carry forth the work that I'm calling you to. Well, when they hear this and they hear the coming of the Spirit, obviously for them, bells and whistles go off in their mind, right? There's a sense of excitement, anticipation. They know now that they're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He's obviously risen from the dead. He's been teaching them and meeting with them for the last month and a half, really getting them prepared for what lies ahead. And so when they hear that the Spirit is going to be poured out on them not many days from now, they immediately, as Jews steeped in the scriptures and then steeped in their understanding of those scriptures, they immediately begin to think, oh, finally, the big day is going to come. Finally, the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. And so look at verse six. So when they had come together and Jesus had told them this about the Holy Spirit, they began asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And so their immediate reaction is, Finally, are you finally going to do what we thought you were going to do for the last three and a half years or so, where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it, it appears that they still haven't got everything sorted out in their mind. Jesus redirects their attention from the 
the really the status of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, to the calling or the vocation that Israel was always supposed to have. And now he's entrusting to them as the foundation of his new kingdom. So look what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, but he said to them, it's not for you to know the periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. So you don't need to worry about dates, times, right? Timelines, when is it going to happen, right? Don't, don't get caught up in that. Here's what you need to focus on. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so the Spirit's going to come and he's going to come specifically to equip and empower you for a task. What's that task? Well, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and as far as the remotest part of the earth. And so the first thing to notice there is that their job is to be witnesses. You're going to be empowered by the Spirit specifically for the task of being my witnesses, Jesus says. And so Jesus shifts the focus from the fortunes of Israel, are, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel, to the vocation of Israel. She was always supposed to be a light to the nations. Well, now Jesus says that that's your job. Your job is to be my witnesses, to be that light, just as was said, for example, in Isaiah 49 and other places. And that's their task. And notice he gives these three geographical regions that we said in the backstory and uh, essentially outlines the flow of the story of the book of Acts. You're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. And so the first little bit of the story of Acts all revolves around Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria, two larger geographic regions. Judea is the, the region that's all around Jerusalem and is made up predominantly of Jewish folks. And Samaria is the geographical region just north of Jerusalem uh, that is made up of sort of half-breed Jews, if you will. And there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the fact that they're going to be Jesus' witnesses to them is surprising. And we'll get to read some of those stories in a few chapters here in a little bit. And then to the remotest parts or to the ends of the earth. And in other words, to the broader world, all the way out into the Gentile terrain and beyond all of that. Again, Isaiah 49 verse 6 speaks about this. It speaks of in the days of the Messiah, when Messiah has come, that uh, it's too small of a thing for him to be a light just to, just to Israel. It says that I will make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, just like here in Acts chapter 1. And so that's the trajectory of their witnessing. Their witnessing is going to go out from Jerusalem, out to Judea, out to Samaria, and all the way be beyond that to the ends of the earth so that the light and the salvation of God may go clear to the ends of the earth. Uh, one important little technical note that we should note as we reflect on this is the word witness 
in the book of Acts is used in a very specific sort of way. We often use the word witness for, you know, witnessing to my coworker or my neighbor, meaning sharing the gospel with them and all of that. And that's appropriate and that's fine. But Luke uses it here in the book of Acts in a very, very precise and specific sense. Um, first off, Luke makes it clear that he's using the word witness to refer to an eyewitness. We'll see that very shortly here in Acts chapter 1. Not only that, whenever Luke uses the word witness, it always seems to focus on the apostles. And so, for example, 122, one of these will be chosen to be a witness with us of the resurrection. Uh, 232, uh, we are witnesses, Peter speaking about he and the apostles, we are witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15, we are witnesses that God raised him from the dead. And over and over again through the book of Acts, the word witness seems to be limited specifically to the eyewitness testimony of the apostles focused on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And so Luke is using this word in a very, very specific sense. And so when Jesus here says, you will be my witnesses, he's speaking to the apostles about their role to be eyewitnesses, telling how God raised him from the dead and how he is now king and Lord. And so Luke has summarized how Jesus appeared to the apostles for 40 days demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was risen from the dead. And he has focused on one specific interaction between Jesus and the apostles, the one where Jesus commissioned them to be witnesses by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has given them a very specific instruction, wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit is poured out. With that then, Luke once again describes Jesus' ascension. He says in verse 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Cloud here most likely probably is a cloud that was like symbolic of the very presence of God because the ascension's about Jesus going into God's very own presence. And Luke is the only writer to describe Jesus' ascension. It's alluded to in other places, but he's the only one to describe it and probably does so to emphasize that things have changed. For 40 days, Jesus has been kind of showing up, appearing, popping in and out of their life, but this is a definitive endpoint, and they know something has changed, and now their job is to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit is poured out. And so this marks the end of Jesus' resurrection appearances and marks the beginning of their ministry as they wait for the Spirit to be poured out. Verse 10, and as they were gazing intently into the sky, so they're staring up into the sky as he's being lifted up into this cloud and disappears from their sight. So they're watching. So they were gazing up into the sky while he was departing. Behold, suddenly two men in white clothing stood beside them. The white clothing probably indicates like trans, you know, some shining sort of clothing or something like that, much like we saw at the transfiguration or we saw uh, with the resurrection. And so we know we're, these are angels, right? And so uh, two men in white clothing stood beside them and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven 
heaven being God's space. That's the significance of the cloud. That's the significance of this moment. Jesus is now no longer going to be appearing to them. So he's been taken up from you into heaven, will come just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. And so Jesus will come uh, in a visible sense. And so from the get-go, they are already told about Jesus' return and that he will come again someday from heaven at some point. And so with that, their direct physical interactions with Jesus, risen from the dead, is now over. And so Luke continues the story here with, now we get fresh material, nothing that's overlapping with the gospel. We, we get some new data here, beginning in verse 12. It says, then they, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, from the mount of Olives. So the ascension presumably happened on the Mount of Olives, just outside of the city. So they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Uh, this is a Jewish way of marking distance. Uh, this represented a distance of about three-fifths of a mile or about uh, 2,000 cubits, roughly. It was the uh, it was the approximate distance one could travel on the Sabbath without being guilty of working and violating the law's command to rest on the Sabbath and do no work. And so this was just a traditional way of marking that out. And so it tells us that we're not very far away from Jerusalem, right? We're, we're a little over half a mile from Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem. And if you put yourselves into their shoes as they make this walk, just imagine that this half mile walk, three-fifths of a mile, three-quarters of a mile walk back to Jerusalem. They've spent a month and a half interacting with Jesus. They've been now commissioned to be his witnesses. Uh, the Spirit's going to be poured out. They've just watched him now disappear back into heaven. They, they now know that there's an end point, right, that he's not going to be appearing to them anymore, and they have a task to do. But right now they're supposed to just wait and, and watch until the Spirit is poured out. Man, what a walk back to Jerusalem this would have been. Um, and so verse 13 says, And when they had entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And so they returned to the upstairs room where they were staying, uh, possibly the same upstairs room where they, they had eaten the Last Supper a month and a half ago with Jesus, right? Possibly the same upstairs room. We're not sure, but they're, they're staying since they're from Galilee, right? Jerusalem's not their hometown. So at least a good number of the apostles are staying in this upstairs room there in Jerusalem. And Luke then lists off the, the apostles for us. Notice uh, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And so we get this listing of the apostles, and notice there's only 11. That's important because that's going to shape what happens in the last little bit of Acts chapter 1. And so these return to Jerusalem, and they're returned to the upper room where they're staying, and verse 14 summarizes how they're going to spend the next a handful of days while they wait for the Spirit to be poured out. Verse 14, all of these, these 11 apostles, were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so the, the apostles, the 11 apostles, and some women, 
presumably the same women that are mentioned right at the end of the Gospel of Luke, the women who were going to the tomb with the spices, the women who came and reported to the apostles that they had seen some angels and didn't see the body. It's presumably those same women that are noted at the end of the Gospel of Luke. We also get a mention here of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Notice that. She's part of this group there in Jerusalem as well. And she is she is now with these people praying and waiting and watching and his brothers. And this should be surprising because we know from the Gospels, his brothers, they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand his ministry. They didn't totally get what he was about. They were struggling to believe in him as well. Um, yet we know from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to one of his brothers, James. And so it seems as if his brothers now have, they, they're on board. They, okay, we may not have understood it. We may not have, we may have been skeptical, right? But he rose from the dead. And so here they are gathered with the apostles and the women and their mom. And these all together are devoting themselves continually with one mind to prayer. They're busy about praying. That probably means in the upper room they're praying. That probably also means in the temple at the hours of prayer they're gathered to praying. In fact, in the next verse, we're going to get note that there's about 120 people who are all gathered together as kind of followers of Jesus here. You're not going to fit that in an upper room in Jerusalem. That would be very difficult. And so probably somewhere in the temple where they're meeting for the hours of prayer. And so they're, they're just continually praying. And Jesus has said, it's not going to be many days until the Spirit pours out. We, we will discover from the next chapter that it will have only been 10 days, about 10 days from the time Jesus said that. And so for a week and a half, they're meeting uh, and praying, meeting in the temple, gathering in the upper room as a smaller group, praying, and they're just praying and waiting on the Lord. I imagine they're meditating on scripture and they're thinking back over all the things they've said and praying about that. And so they're continually devoting themselves to prayer. And at this time, verse 15, meaning at this time while they're waiting and watching and praying, Peter stood up among the brothers and the sisters, this group of men and women. Uh, and notice Luke puts in a parenthetical note, a group of about 120 people was together. So on this particular occasion where Peter's going to stand up and give his speech that we're going to read, uh, there's about 120 people there. And to me, that suggests we're probably in the temple. It's not told to us exactly where this meeting is happening at. But it's going to be hard-pressed to fit 120 people into any upper room in Jerusalem. Um, possible, but I think we're, we're likely in the temple somewhere, one of the courtyards where they're gathered. And Peter stands up and he says, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And so Peter in this meeting and praying and talking and thinking, Peter, already assuming leadership, and that makes sense. He was always one of Jesus' right-hand men anyhow, and he's a fairly vocal member. So he's assuming leadership over the group of the apostles and this group of 120 people. And he says, we need to, we really need to do something about this Judas situation. And he says, scripture had to be fulfilled. He's going to quote a passage here very shortly from the Psalms. Um, that says, man, what happened, what Judas did is right in keeping with what the scripture said. Um, and 
it says that this verse 17, for he was counted among us and re received a share in this ministry. And so he was part of us and yet it, it didn't go well, right? He betrayed Jesus. Now, verse 18 and 19 seems to be a parenthetical note by Luke. Scholars have wrestled with, is it still part of Peter's speech? Is it a parenthetical note from Luke? I think it's parenthetical, and the major reason I think that is because of the shift in pronouns. Notice in verse 17, he was counted among us, and then in uh, verse uh, 18 and 19, we have a shift to there, uh, that it was noted, it called in their own language, hakeldama. Peter wouldn't say there because Peter is a Jew, speaking of the Jewish language. And so it seems that Luke here has interrupted Peter's speech just to give us a little clarifying note about what happened to Judas since he didn't mention it in the gospel. It's mentioned in Matthew's gospel, but not in Luke's gospel. So he interrupts in verse 18 and gives a little clarifying parenthesis. Here's what happened to Judas um, as a result of what he did to Jesus, verse 18. Now this man, i.e. Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines, his bowels, gushed out and it became known to all the residents of Jerusalem. And as a result, that field was called Hakeldama in their own language, that is, field of blood. So Luke seems to be just interrupting, saying, here's what happened to Judas. Um, in doing so, he mentioned several details that actually are challenging because they're different than the way Matthew describes it. So the first off is who bought the field? Uh, in Matthew's version, Matthew 27, the chief priest bought the field with the 30 pieces of silver that Judas gave back to them. Um, Luke says, this man acquired a field. My guess is what Luke means by that is there was a field purchased with his money. It just happened to be the very field where he hung himself and died, which is sort of ironic. Um, maybe intentional on the Jewish leader's part that they, they don't want anything to be, they want to try to distance themselves from this. So here, that's where he died. He can have that field. And so they purchased the field with Judas's money. And, and then Luke says here that he burst open in the middle and all his intestines, his bowels gushed out. Uh, Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself. Uh, and maybe it's a combination of the two. There's nothing about this that, that says uh, Jesus couldn't hung himself, hang himself, right? He falling headlong. And so he hung himself and then maybe the limb broke or the rope gave out. Who knows? We're, we're not sure. But somehow Judas fell. And when he fell, it burst open in the middle, um, probably by hanging, right? And he's dead. If It doesn't take long for the gases to build up and, right, and stretch everything out. And so if he fell from his, wherever he hung himself, and uh, popped <laughs> sort of like a nasty uh, bad water balloon and all his intestines gushed out. That seems to be what we're talking about here. And thus, that field is now known for two reasons. Field of blood. It was bought with blood money, Matthew 27, and it happens to be the field where Judas's blood was spilled. And so that's what happened to Judas. Because that's what happened to Judas, Peter now is going to go on and he's going to say, here's what needs to happen. Um, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his residence be desolate and may there be none living in it and may another take his office. The first quotation here is from Psalm 69, 25, 
And it really uh, is a plea and a protest against an enemy. The second quote is from Psalm 109, verse 8. And uh, it is uh, another one of those psalms where there's conflict and it's a really a series of curses against an enemy. Peter here takes these two psalms and says, just like that, the same is true in this case as well. And so another needs to take the office of Judas. We need to have a 12th person in our midst. Peter's conviction derives not only from the Psalms and what what seemed appropriate in those cases for God's righteous person, such as Jesus here, but Peter's conviction also derives from the fact that we need to have 12, that Jesus was intentional in choosing 12, that Uh, We are like the foundations of a new Israel in the Messiah. And so we need a 12th person to take Judas's place. And that's where Peter goes here in his speech. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, it is necessary. This is a necessary thing. Based on scripture, based on the number 12, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, All the time the Lord Jesus went out and among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so Peter uh, lays out his conviction they need to replace Judas with a new candidate, and he gives qualifications for that candidate. That person needed to be there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right at the baptism of John, all the way to the ascension, and he needed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection and an eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, right? That they, this is central. They are supposed to be witnesses and eyewitnesses in particular of his resurrection. So Peter gives these qualifications uh, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry right up until the end. Well, they put forward two men who both were qualified, verse 23. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. So they put forth these two men, both who meet the qualifications, and they prayed. And they said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all people. Show us which of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And so Judas is, obviously he's gone to his own place. Uh, He's received the uh, just repayment for his choice, right? We need somebody else to replace him, notice, to be an apostle, to occupy this ministry and apostleship. And so this replacement is going to be an apostle with them. We have two equally qualified men that are put forward. Uh, We are asking the Lord to show us which one he wants to replace Judas. And so in verse 26, they drew lots or cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles, and so now we're back to 12. One of the things that's important to notice here is casting lots, right? Like, we never see this again in the book of Acts. We never see this as the way uh, leaders are chosen in the book of Acts. And so we don't want to take, like, casting lots here in verse 26 and make that normative for the church. you got to roll dice to pick, pick them out. What we have here are equally qualified men. Um, and so we, we've set forth qualifications. They both meet the qualifications. We are praying and asking the Lord to make it clear, since we only have one spot and two equally qualified men, which one do you want? And in this case, the lot fell to Matthias, 
and he became part of the 12 apostles. And that's how the book of Acts begins. That's Acts chapter 1. Let me just summarize what I think is really one of the major themes of Acts chapter 1. Obviously, there's a number of things we can look at. But this whole story uh, in Acts chapter 1 is about the apostles being witnesses of the resurrection. That's where it ends, right? That's what Jesus said to them, that they're going to be witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. We need to choose a new witness with us of the resurrection. And not just that they're going to be witnesses, but they're promised power to carry out that task of witnesses by the Holy Spirit. And so the theme of this story in the book of Acts seems to be that the apostles are promised power to witness on behalf of Jesus. And that really sets the stage for the rest of the book of Acts, which is all about that. It's about the apostles being witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and how then the story of Jesus moves forward throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the Roman world. It does so by the powerful witness of the apostles as they tell the story of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that really, I think, helps us see what the message of Acts chapter 1 is for us today. Um, What makes the church so effective? What makes the apostles so effective and so powerful? Well, they knew their job. Their job was to be witnesses of the resurrection. And they had the spiritual power to do it when the Spirit is poured out upon them in the very next chapter. Now, we aren't apostles today. The, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, uh, the Apostle Paul says. Uh, and so we're not the apostles today, and we don't share in some of their same privileges and some of their same experiences. Our witnessing is like secondary. We Our witness depends on their witness, right? Like We trust them as eyewitnesses to tell the story, and we're passing on their eyewitness testimony. And we're sharing our own experience then of the risen Jesus in our own life. And so we witness based on their eyewitness testimony and our experience of the res- resurrected Jesus ourselves. And so though we're not apostles— our job is really still the same. The church still goes forward the same way by being witnesses of the resurrection in the power of the Spirit. That was the apostles' job, according to Acts chapter 1. And even though we're not apostles, that's still the church's job today, based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, to be witnesses of the resurrection. That's how the church will move forward today, just as it did in the book of Acts.